Hello and welcome to Haki Obsessed. I am your host with the most, Thomas Boomhauer. And today's episode is for all you lovers out there. We are back with a very tender, affectionate, loving, a very romantic episode of the ongoing saga of Alexander the Great. Last week, we discussed the wealth of Alexander, some of the coinage that he inspired, and some of the ways he managed, or perhaps more accurately, mismanaged it. The insane wealth he acquired during his conquest of the Persian Empire. This week, we're going to be talking about the love life of Alexander the Great. Originally, I pictured this episode being a more holistic exploration of Alexander the Great's relationships, including more discussion than we're going to have here of his friendships with Harpalus, Ptolemy, Nearchus, and Hephaestus. But realistically, all we really need to know is that Harpalus, Ptolemy, and Nearchus rose to high positions within Alexander's regime. Harpalus became his treasurer, fled before the first big battle between Alexander and Darius, the Battle of Issus, and this was a potentially treasonous action. Ultimately, he wasn't punished for it, and Harpalus was reaffirmed as treasurer once he came back, only to grossly abuse his power as we saw last week. Ptolemy was a fairly important general of Alexander's, and is often labeled as a boyhood friend, as are, you know, these next few names I'm going to rattle off. That may not have been accurate. Ptolemy was probably about nine years older than Alexander the Great, and so it's probably more accurate to label these next couple figures as advisors or like, you know, like maybe when you're a freshman in high school and you have the, like you're the cool freshman, you have friends with the seniors, something like that going on. Anyway, Ptolemy rose to become, to become an important general of Alexander's, especially during the later portions of the war. And... More importantly for history, he became king in Egypt following Alexander's death and founded a dynasty that ended with Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra we all know. Ptolemy also wrote a biography of Alexander and a history of the campaigns, which more than likely embellished his own role, but at least some of our sources ascribed legitimacy to him because he was writing at a time when other contemporaries were still alive and thus could have refuted his claims if they were too far removed from being truthful. Nearchus is most famous for becoming Admiral of Alexander's fleet during the campaigns in India and the return back to Persia. Before that, he was one of Alexander's first satrapal appointments and was responsible for bringing reinforcements after he was recalled from that post. He also wrote an accounting of his voyages and explorations, which later sources used, including Arian. There are two others usually counted as the boyhood friends of Alexander, Eridus and Lamedan who rose to positions of high esteem within Alexander's army. We don't know as much about them as the others. Um, Eridus became a general and likely died in the fighting in Sadiana in 328 or 329 BCE, while Laomedon was in charge of captives at one point, but really comes into focus during the wars of its successors that than he does, in our sources at least, during Alexander's reign. These are the five men that are often called boyhood friends of Alexander, more accurately perhaps his companions, his advisors, if you will, like I touched on already, but these are the five that were banished when they gave him the disastrous marriage advice in the Pitsodorus affair that we touched on in earlier episodes. But before we get into the real serious coverage of Alexander's romantic life, whether it be, you know, political, passionate, here's what we got to do before we get into that. 
Remember to follow the show on Instagram at High Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High TO Podcast. Instagram, best place to stay up to date on memes, what's going on with the show. Twitter, not great at posting, but I do once in a while, so it's not, it won't do any harm to follow up there as well. Also, be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. And if you haven't already, go and drop those five star ratings and reviews. And again, again, if you're into reading and into epic fantasy stories, be sure to check out Words and Whiskey podcast and our coverage, because I'm joining them in the next several months, our coverage of the Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee. But now, very abbreviated intro out of the way. Let's get messy. Let's get right to the T. So I think right off the bat, I should say, this is probably going to be the least historically responsible or the most historically irresponsible I'm going to be this season. As I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say by now, all of our sources for Alexander's life second, third hand. And I'm going to use those and speculate about the relationships our dude Alexander the Great had. Initially, like I said, I plan to include more coverage of non-romantic or potentially romantic relationships and expand this into a discussion of his relationships with his friends other than Hephaestion, his parents, his parents, and I feel like we can say, just to kind of summarize, I feel like it's fair to say he was very close to his mother, not particularly close to his father. Definitely had mommy issues, definitely had daddy issues. But, you know, fates conspired against us. So we're just going to focus on the potential romantic relationships and then his two most important friendships, that with Hephaestion and that with his horse Bucephalus, whom he was definitely not romantic with, but he definitely did love this horse. And we will get into some fun stories about this at the end of the episode. Now it is time for another disclaimer, slash note, slash, let's just, why don't you have a seat, let's have a talk for a minute here. As I've said, I think I've been upfront about this throughout the season. The ancient world, ancient history, is something I'm passionate about. But other than Alexander the Great, on the whole, I wouldn't claim to be an expert or even particularly super well-informed about this era, which is, you know, thousands of years. Um, I know the basics, you know, uh, maybe know a little bit more than the average person, but overall on the ancient Greek world, I'm a basic level hobbyist. Don't even get me started on the Romans, who I know very little about. We're always, like, telling me Roman things, thinking I know all about it, asking me questions about the Romans. Guys, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't really fuck with them like that. Their history is very cool. I don't dislike them. It's just I haven't gotten to a point where I've sat down, done my research, done a super deep dive into it. The Second Punic War, I know a little bit about. I read two books about Hannibal's campaigns, but that's a digression. Let's not get into it. Anyway, today what I'm getting at is anyway, what I'm getting at is that what I'm about to say is my understanding of things presented by more well informed scholars and historians of this period than me. Some of this may be overgeneralized, I might be missing some nuance on it. And if any scholars or people who know more than me are out there listening, please let me know so I can issue a correction ASAP. But overall I think this is gonna be a fair assessment of the way Things are understood by academics. With a little high T obsessed flavor thrown on. Now, the sentence I'm about to drop, probably not gonna blow any minds out there. Pretty commonly accepted. The ancient Greeks did not understand sexuality the same ways that we do today. 
And now we're into the as I understand it bit. In most poli in parts of the Greek world, it was not only acceptable but normal for men to engage in sexual relationships with one another. And there was also institutionalized pederasty in some of the poli as well, at least some of them. My understanding is that the act of penetration was largely considered crossing the line in these male-on-male sexual relationships, and this was perhaps especially the case when it came to the institutionalized pederasty. It's also my understanding that it was seen as womanish and submissive to be the non-active partner, so the non-thrusting partner, if you will. But in general, there's nothing wrong with two men enjoying one another sexually. The ideas of romance and love, I'm not even going to really venture into, but they don't seem to have factored into marriages at all, really, amongst the upper classes of Greek culture, at least. In terms of the Macedonians, it seems that similar attitudes amongst at least Philip II and other Macedonian kings, Macedonian nobles. These attitudes seem to have taken hold. There are numerous reports of Philip II having male and female lovers in addition to all of his life, in addition to all of his wives. As we've touched on extensively, he was murdered by a former lover. And so it would seem that at least amongst these upper classes, or the nobility in Macedonia, what we today would consider homosexual relationships were not frowned upon. There's also Aeneas, who was violated and insulted by one of Philip's leading generals before he murdered Philip. And the act was seen as shameful for being non-consensual and demeaning, but not because it was between males. Overall, there seems to have been an attitude, at least amongst ancient Athenians, that exclusively male-on-male sexual relationships were not right, and that was due to reproductive reasons. But again, I'm not super well-versed in the specific field of interpreting ancient Greek attitudes on sex, marriage, and love. So I think, with that little bit of primer out of the way, it's time to move on and get into, I'm not going to say reckless, but maybe reckless, speculation on Alexander the Great's very famous relationship with Hephaestion. The reason that I even had that little primer, that little discussion thrown in here, is because I think it's important to have that context in place when we discuss Alexander the Great's very famous relationship with Hephaestion. Alexander the Great had two great friendships that lasted for much of his life, although he would outlive both, spoiler alert. These are with the human, Hephaestion, and the horse Bucephalus. Paul Cartledge, in his otherwise pretty straightforward and dry history of Alexander, no disrespect, by the way, to our dude Paul Cartledge, very respected, very talented historian, just a tad dry normally for my taste, I would say. Just a tad boring normally for my taste, I would say. But he has this absolutely just killer joke that I'm slightly paraphrasing just because I've only listened to his work on Audible several times, and it's not just because the narrator I find him born. I've read other stuff, and it's just not the most lively history I've ever read, let's say. Anyway, I'm slightly paraphrasing this joke because only listen to it, don't have a copy. Alexander the Great had two lifelong friends. One of these was a dumb brute, and the other was Bucephalus. Now, I think that's a little bit unfair to Hephaestion, not necessarily a super kind characterization of his intelligence and his skills. But still, it's very funny. We're going to give our guy his props for that one. So while others, so while the others counted as boyhood friends of Alexander were a little bit to fairly significantly older than him, Hephaestion was about the same age of Alexander. 
and the pair were undeniably close throughout their lives. This closeness and a few notable stories have led many to speculate about the nature of their relationship and whether it was romantic, whether it was sexual, whether they were in love with one another, or at least Alexandra was in love with him. Now, necessary responsibility here. The correct answer is we simply do not know. As we've touched on again and again, our sources aren't great. They often weren't super concerned with the interpersonal relationships with Alexander, with some notable exceptions. They're impacted by the attitudes of their day, and then their attitude by the way they've been filtered and passed down to us. Who's to say, you know, times when maybe more conservative powers were in charge of, let's say, Italy, for example? That translations weren't changed or slightly altered a phrase, you know, here or there to obscure the meaning of things. Further complicating matters is a, is a desire among some of the sources to highlight differences between Philip and Alexander, which is why we get suggestions that Philip was quite promiscuous while Alexander was relatively chaste. And things like Alexander was a moderate drinker compared to Philip, who was an excessive drinker, even though Alexander murdered a man who saved his life while drunk. But Independent of our sources, if we can tell her a little outside the lines of what is strictly responsible, let's get after it. Let's speculate a little bit here. Hephaestion was likely the son of a Macedonian noble, or a Greek noble came to the court of Macedon under Philip. Either way, he must have been important because it is believed that Hephaestion was schooled alongside Alexander at the Nephium of Maesa under Aristotle. He is notably absent during the Pizzodorus affair that led to Alexander's other friends being exiled, and first enters the historical sources in 334 BCE when Alexander crosses the Dardanelles and voyages to the location that the ancient Greeks incorrectly believed to have been ancient Troy. While there, Alexander laid a wreath on the tomb of his ancestor Achilles, and if the ancient stories are true, Hephaestion laid one on the tomb of Patrick. Which, of course, brings us to the Iliad and the nature of Achilles and Patroclus' relationship. Spoiler alert, they were not cousins as the Brad Pitt epic Troy would have us believe. Again, a little tricky to pin down their relationship, and again, this is my understanding of things. So the Iliad is, of course, the epic poem credited to Homer that takes place in the final weeks of the Trojan War, a ten-year struggle between the Greeks and Persians. It is believed to have had an historical inceptor, but by Alexander's day in the 4th century BCE, the story was already hundreds of years old, having likely been, you know, written, started to be talked about, passed down orally in the late 8th or early 7th century BCE. In Homer's original words, it isn't overtly stated that Achilles and Patroclus were romantically in love, nor that they were sexually involved. But... There are many allusions to a great deal of shared love, and things like Achilles burying a strand of his hair with Patrocles, and Patrocles' ghost wishing them to be buried together. It is also my understanding that by Alexander's day, it was widely understood that Achilles and Patrocles were lovers or sexually involved with one another. So that seems pretty significantly to point to Alexander and Hephaestion being sexually involved with another. And given a few other things, I think it is fair to say romantically connected, if not sort of in our modern sense, in love with one another as well. Another incident 
indicating Alexander's fondness for Hephaestian comes following the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE. The Macedonians won the battle after Darius III and the Persians fled the field. In doing so, the Macedonians captured a great many luxuries and treasures, and also the royal family of Darius, his mother Sissy Dambis, his wife Stateria, credited with being the most beautiful woman in the Persian Empire, God bless, and indeed, she seems to have been very beautiful and not just called the most beautiful woman in Persia because she was the queen, and also their children, which included his daughters Stateria II and Drypitis. Drypitis? We'll go with, uh, what do you think, listeners? Drypitis? Let's do Drypitis. Who will factor significantly shortly. Apparently, Sissy Dambis mistook Hephaestion, who was considered to be more handsome and was definitely taller than Alexander, for the king. She was embarrassed when Hephaestion alerted her to the, alerted her to the mistake, and a little afraid, fearing that she had affronted the king who held the life of her and her family in his hands. Alexander is said to have laughed it off, told her that no harm was done, for Hephaestion was as much Alexander as he was. Interesting. Interesting. Am I right? Hephaestion also seems to have been alone amongst prominent Greek and Macedonians in supporting the adoption of Persian customs like proskinesis by Alexander, and he often acted as a go-between with leading Persians for Alexander. So, what does this tell us? It tells us he was a loyal follower of Alexander. There's no record of him ever significantly opposing Alexander. The role of a trusted individual, basically. Right-hand man, at the very least. He was also raised a co-leader of the Companion Cavalry after Philotus, who was the son of Parmenio and leader of the Companion Cavalry during the early portions of the campaign. Philotus was killed for alleged failures to report treason, more on that in a later episode. And at the time that Hephaestion was elevated, he probably wasn't qualified for this position. It seems that he hadn't led a major unit in battle before this. The companion cavalry, obviously a very important. Hephaestion would prove himself to be a very skilled administrator, trusted again and again by Alexander with crucial planning tasks, you know, whether it be laying the foundation of cities, securing supplies, and eventually he would be formally named Alexander's number two, both in the military sense and also in the administrative sense of his empire. However, he rarely commanded significant military force, and when he did, he did so with another more experienced commander alongside him. But he was, again, repeatedly trusted with those crucial, critical administrative tasks. Securing supplies over the winter, building a bridge over the Indus, commanding the baggage train, all manners of administrative tasks that were of the utmost importance for the army to continue to function. We'll get into detail about a few more of those things as we cover Alexander's military campaigns in more depth, but his skills in administration, in addition for Alexander's fondness, seem to have led to him to rise to the position of Chiliarch, or second in command politically, while also being in name at least, second in command to Alexander's military. It seems clear that Hephaestion was not necessarily beloved by those in Alexander's inner circle. He also might have just been overtly disliked those. Included amongst this was one of Alexander's best generals, Craterus, and there was an instance in India where there was a huge disagreement between the two, and Alexander intervened and publicly reprimanded Hephaestion. It seems that the exception to this was probably Perdiccas, 
but other officers were just not fans of Hephaestion at all. And that made sense. You know, um, he was clearly the favorite of the chain. We don't know how qualified he was for his high-ranking positions. He clearly had the chain's ear and trust. So we don't know how much of this dislike was due to personal enmity. Was Hephaestion a dick? Possibly. Was he a jerk? Who knows? And we don't know how much of it was due to jealousy. Hephaestion was a loyal friend of Alexander's, always supporting him and his political ambitions as far as we know. In, a, in addition to supporting the Eastern customs such as prosthenesis that I touched on already and other Persian customs, he seems to have been a supporter of the grand marriage ceremony at Susa. We touched on this last week, and this is skipping over Alexander's first marriage, which may have been genuinely born out of desire. But what we need to know here, Alexander arranged a grand marriage between his officers, many of those in his army, himself, and Hephaestion to Persian brides. Many of his army had taken Persian lovers during the campaign, and they were married to one another at Susa, with their massive debts paid off by the king. The hope for this was that Alexander's troops would form an integrated Persian and Macedonian families, born in Persia, loyal to Macedon, a new troop of... So basically, Alexander was having issues uniting his kingdom, and this could have been, if we want to read favorably into Alexander's motives, as I am inclined to do for the most part, this could have been a crucial step in uniting his empire. At this ceremony, Alexander married Statyra II, the eldest daughter of Darius III, and his wife also named Statyra, and Hephaestion married Tripitus, a younger sister of Alexander's wife. Alexander himself apparently expressed excitement that their children would be cousins, and I think it wouldn't be unfair to assume that both Alexander and Hephaestion were fired up that their kids would be related and raised together in a royal court. So basically, he was formally bringing Hephaestion into the royal family, solidifying their bond, making them, you know, brothers-in-law, and given traditions of, you know, we see cousins marrying cousins all the time, it's not unlikely that had Alexander had a son, and Hephaestion and his wife, a daughter that the pair would have had, would the pair would have been married, and then their potential grandson would have been king. So this move could have very well seen the hypothetical grandson of Alexander and Hephaestion presumably would be long dead by the time that this individual is able to do so, but see their grandson as king of Macedonia. So, given that the pair could hardly adopt a kid together, this seems to be as close to adopting a child as two potential lovers could get in this day. Now, that is reckless speculation on my part, requires a couple leaves of logic, but assuming the pair had romantic feelings towards one another, feel like that speculation would be in bounds. Obviously, we cannot know the true extent of the relationship, but I think it's fair. Obviously, I'm not saying that was the case. Could also just be, you know, given their obvious closeness, they just wanted to formally solidify their bond, formally become brothers. Shortly after this, however, Hephaestion died. The stories are to be believed, following a huge drinking binge, he developed a fever. He was given a strict diet to follow, which he did for almost an entire week before he ate an entire chicken and then washed it down with copious amounts of chilled wine, at which point 
he fell violently ill and then died. He died before Alexander had heard the news that he was sick again and before Alexander could reach him. At which point, you know, now I'm going to come in, I'm going to echo some other biographers of Alexander here and note that Alexander's grief was Homeric. He apparently threw himself on the body of his dead friend and refused to be removed for hours, weeping, sobbing, inconsolable, until he was forcibly drugged away. Regardless if the relationship was sexual, romantic, or simply the love of friendship, it is clear that Hephaestion was dearly important to Alexander and that he deeply loved this man. Rich as he was in resources now that he had conquered the Persian Empire, he also held a lavish funeral, spending perhaps as many as 10,000 to 12,000 talents, an absolutely absurd amount, and he had planned an insanely expensive tomb for Hephaestion as well. He also consciously emulated Achilles' mourning of Patrocles here, cutting his hair and ordering the manes of horses be dot. Again, it was my understanding that in the 4th century BCE, which is when Alexander was alive when these events are taking place, the Greek, the learned Greek world understood the pair of Achilles and Patrocles to be lovers. If that is the case, if Alexander understood that to be the case, and he is consciously emulating Achilles in his actions of mourning his friend Hephaestion, that is pretty telling in my eyes. Alexander further ordered the sacred temple, or the sacred, Alexander further orders the sacred flame be extinguished in all Zoroastrian temples. Zoroastrianism was one of the predominant religions in the Persian Empire. More on that in the Alexander the God episode coming up. And this action furthers the public mourning to his Persian subjects. And is also just gross blasphemy against their church, as this action of extinguishing the flame was only to be used for the death of a king. So, didn't do him any favors with his conquered subjects. In his mourning, Alexander sent an envoy to the oracle at Siwa, which is important because previously he had gone there, he had sought it out. It's a famous oracle in Egypt. I'd given him an answer that he was perhaps the son of Zeus. And he was like, hey, here's a nice little letter. Can my guy, Hephaestion, be granted divine honors? Can he be worshipped as a god? That's what he wants, right? He receives a reply that he could not be worshipped as a god, but he could be worshipped as a divine hero, which seems to have mollified Alexander and heartened him greatly. And thus, exits from Alexander's life, Hephaestion. Now, I initially didn't plan to do a mini-biography mini of Hephaestion there, but it felt important to finish his story in recounting of his relationship with Alexander before progressing. I thought maybe, you know, I'd tie it in, do this sort of sequentially throughout Alexander the Great's life. I feel like now it makes sense, you know, let's go lover by lover, beat by beat. And I think the next step of this is to discuss his relationship with Barsene. Barsene lightly met Alexander while she and her father were exiles from Persia, sheltering in the court of Philip. She was a Persian noble, and she was likely a few, if not more than a few, years older than Alexander. She eventually returned to Persia and married Mentor, the elder brother of Memnon, who was a general Alexander first encounters in Persia, does more than most of the Persian generals to stymie, to stymie, excuse me, to stymie Alexander after the Battle of Granicus. Memnon and Mentor were griefs. 
in service to the Persians. After Mentor's death, Barsene marries Memnon. And then after that, after his death, uh, she's amongst those captured by the Macedonians following the Battle of Issus. Parmenio, the old second in command from Philip's time, and perhaps both Philip and Alexander's most gifted field commander, best strategic general, often presented as a foil to the more aggressive Alexander by our sources, Parmenio is said to have sent Barsene to Alexander's tent. To paraphrase Adrian Goldsworthy's take on the situation, because of my modern sources, he goes into the most detail on the relationship, it is possible that Parmenio knew Alexander had a pre-existing crush on Barsene. It's also possible he had a good read on Alexander's tastes. But either way, Parmenio sent Barsene to Alexander, who takes her as a mistress from this point forward. This is notable because stories throughout these campaigns have Alexander being presented with beautiful women, beautiful men, to be, you know, to be his mistresses, to be his lovers, and he usually turns them away. And he's not immune to it, you know, he accepts Barsene as a gift, and then he has a potential he has a potential relationship with a unit we'll touch on later, but he does strike up this ongoing relationship with Barsene, which is notable for its rarity, not just for taking a lover that was offered to him as a gift, but also for taking a lover in general, frankly. Some traditions, including our guy Plutarch, would have us believe that Barsene took Alexander's virginity at this point. But there are famous stories of Olympias apparently fearing Alexander was, quote, womanish in his youth, or was worried by his lack of interest in hashtag the ladies, purchased a famously skilled and beautiful courtesan for Alexander, whom he refused to have sets with by all accounts. So, following the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE, Alexander would have been about 23 years old, Barsene, taken for a lover, for sure, possibly Tetrarchy's virginity. She was considered quite beautiful and was likely highly educated, and there are suggestions that his feelings for her were more than just lust, with many scholars reporting that the pair lived in a de facto relationship. He was interested in her ideas, her love of Greek literature. There's also the strong possibility, with some scholars taking it in, you know, face value, they believe this 100%. Some are like, I don't fuck with this idea at all, this is made up, this is hodwash, if you will. But there is the very strong possibility that Alexander fathered an illegitimate child with Barsene named Heracles. This child first appears in our sources at age 17, 12 years after Alexander's death, and he's used as a pawn in the dynastic struggles of Alexander's successors. That is my understanding of things anyway, and so sometimes it is claimed that the whole relationship with Barsene was invented to justify Heracles' existence. Heracles was just a kid who looked a lot like Alexander and was not actually related to him. But historians I respect have just straight up said that Barsene was his mistress and Heracles is a legitimate son, so I am very comfortable rocking with them. And that brings us to Alexander's first wife, Roxanne, who didn't need to turn on the red light to capture Alexander's heart. Roxanne was the daughter of Atiardis, a Batrian noble, not a direct or indirect descendant of the Persian throne, and not even a super important noble, though he was fairly important to that region. An unruly one that Alexander and his forces had had much difficulty conquering. She did not speak Greek, but the ancient sources would have us believe 
though she was a great beauty, considered second only to Darius's wife, Cetaria. It was said that Alexander fell in love with her at first sight, struck with her beauty, and that the pair were married in the Macedonian custom. It seems likely that the marriage was likely born of political reasons, with a healthy dash of lust thrown in for good measure. This act showed that Alexander was willing to treat the natives of the satrapy with respect and earned him a staunch ally in the region. The fact that she was apparently hot as all get out surely didn't hurt things. It's also notable because he took his first wife at this point. She was not Greek or Macedonian as he had been constantly urged to do throughout his reign and is sometimes used as by ancient sources as an example of his growing decadence, his growing lust, his growing lack of control, and his giving over to Persian customs of kingship. But as I just touched on, there were all the political reasons that this made sense. It's also important to note that this was Alexander's first marriage, and I believe the second overt mention of a relationship with a woman there are rumors that he may have slept with, you know, Sissy Gambus, Darius's mother, Ada of Caria, maybe a Amazonian queen. We'll touch on that. Um, but because this was Alexander's first wife, he had been so resistant to taking a wife before this. It is possible that because he was so famous and his wife would play a role in his the wars of his successors, that Basically, so famous, a king had to have a noteworthy wife, basically, is what I'm getting at. So it could have been purely political. She was not pretty. Who knows? Anyway, Roxanne would... I'm just saying Roxanne. Um, it could be pronounced Roxanne. It could be Roxanna. I'm just saying Roxanne. Sorry. Roxanne and Alexander sired a son who would be born after Alexander died. This son was named Alexander IV. Alexander the Great is Alexander III. And Alexander IV, Ratsan, would play a keen role in the wars of successors, sometimes proactive, sometimes pawns. Ultimately, they're murdered along with, although not at the same time, nor with him, Heracles, which brings the RDN line to an end. But more on that in a later episode. Alexander may have also had a longish-lasting sexual relationship with a Persian eunuch named Doas, famed for his beauty. It's unclear whether Alexander and Doas had a physical relationship or whether it was merely a tool in our ancient sources painting Alexander's descendants into decadence and so-called Eastern practices, because both the Greeks and Romans were vile units. Doas had been in the court of Darius III, and had a lot of knowledge about the inner workings of the court, relationships among the Persian nobles. And so it made sense that Alexander would have taken some of his advice on how to handle things in Persia without having been lusting after this man's beauty and, you know, besotted with him. And so it is entirely possible that the later sources just hated eunuchs and thus painted him in a bad light. Bagoas did exist, we know that, but the exact nature of their relationship is even harder to pin down than that with Hephaestion. Although, in this case, there are direct and overt references to a sexual relationship, there's just some speculation that it may have been propaganda. But that brings us more or less to the confirmed romantic relationships that he had. 
He was married to Statyra II. She did not bear him any children as far as we know. She was murdered by Roxanne following his death. And to my knowledge, we don't know a great deal about how Alexander and Satyra felt about one another. We know that while she was a captive, after she was captured, she was treated well, she was educated, and no harm came to her, presumably. So we know that, but that is about it. The women were kind of brushed over a little faster than Hephaestion because ancient sources largely neglected women, and also because they factor more prominently besides Barsene in the war in the wars of his successors, which I know little about, frankly, and also, also, because we know, and there's more scholarship, about his relationship with Hephaestion. Before we get to perhaps his longest lasting relationship, and one of the best friendships of his life, let's indulge in a fun story here. Apparently in 330 BCE, the queen of the Amazons, the Lestris, comes to Alexander, determined to sire a child as brave and as capable as the famed commander. The pair were said to have spent nearly two weeks together in a non-stop festival of sets, and she promised that if their child were a boy, he'd be returned to Alexander, and that she would raise their girl child. Plutarch relays this story to us, although he wasn't really buying it. He wasn't like, he's like, this sounds like cap. This sounds like it's made up, not buying into it at all, and Lysimachus, a companion of Alexander's, who would become a king during the War of Successors, is said to have heard this story directly from, from one of the alleged contemporary historians of Alexander, and that, you know, Lysimachus hears this, he's like, where was I when this happened? So, it seems to be made up, to say the least, but with all these torrid love affairs covered, Let's talk about the least transactional, although he was purchased, most surely platonic relationship of Alexander's life, his friendship with the horse, Bucephalus. Bucephalus, as I'm sure you all recall, is the horse that Alexander claimed at around 12 years old when other more experienced riders were unable to calm the horse and his father was ready to send him away. Alexander noticed he was afraid of his own shadow and so he, you know, he calms the horse, tames him, does a little stunt, rides him around and his father purchases him for the insane sum of 13 talents, several smallish fortunes. Alexander would ride Bucephalus into battle after battle, and across thousands of miles, up and down mountains, across rivers, all the way into India, during a campaign which saw thousands of horses die in battle, during marches, like, thousands of horses died in this, in Alexander's campaigns against the Persians and Indians. Like, the fact that his horse made it all the way to India, pretty outstanding. He also trusted this horse above all other mounts, riding him in the battle even when he was considered past his prime. Uh, he rode him in the battle at Gargamela, the largest numerical battle of Alexander's campaign, and also into, some sources would have us believe, the Battle of the Hydaspes, which meant crossing a raging river. More on that later, that's a very cool battle. Anyway, a remarkable and bloody depiction of Alexander's love for his horse comes in the fall of 330 BCE, when the hills tribes people of the Mar- Mardi kidnap Bucephalus and some other horses, not just Bucephalus. Alexander responds, rationally, 
by threatening to destroy all of their lands, cut down every tree, burn every village, and kill every inhabitant. At first, they don't believe him. They're not buying it. They think he's bluffing. But Alexander sends some of his army into the hills. They destroy a village or two. You know, they carry out their threat. And the, the Mardi send Alexander not only Bucephalus, but gifts to assuage his anger. Not great if you're with the Mardi, but I feel like that's a pretty good showing of his love for this horse. Bucephalus would faithfully serve Alexander until 326 BC, when he died possibly from wounds suffered in the great battle against Porus along the Hydaspes, Alexander's last great and perhaps greatest strategic battle, or maybe from a combination of age and disease shortly after that battle. He was around 30 years old, a little bit older than Alexander, and the king mourned the loss of his friend greatly. I'm sure you've all seen the memes Alexander founded, you know, X number of cities named after himself and one after his horse. Despite the fact that he didn't name a number of cities after himself, and many more came to bear his name after his death, following the death of Bucephalus, Alexander did name a city after his dear friend, which is perhaps modern Jilam in Pakistan today. He also minted coinage with a picture depicting himself astride Bucephalus fighting an elephant, perhaps Horus upon that elephant, to honor his friend. And that, ladies and gentlemen, all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which I think showed us a nicer, a softer, a kinder side to Alexander than we've seen so far. He was a loyal friend to say the least, and to those he loved, extremely dedicated, and his love for those in his good graces was nearly endless. So, as always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those ratings and reviews, five stars only, if you please, and be sure to tune in next time, two weeks time, when I discuss something to be determined about Alexander's life. Not sure exactly what I'm going to cover that episode. In March, I'm going to do that four-part, which might be like six parts, dedicated to the generalship of Alexander. So I have to figure out which of my planned episodes fits best with that. But that's my problem to worry about. So until next time, remember, we be all night. We be all night. Peace.